Hey, zombie lovers. Uh, we're so glad that you joined us today. I'm Richard Krauss. On the other end of the internet tube, we have Chris Ooh. Abel waving to the hello. people. Hello, um, hello. We, uh, every week, if you haven't been joining us regularly, every week we get together, we talk about esoteric things. We talk about strange things. Um, you know, the podcast is called Hey All You Zombies. You can find out all about it at heyallyouzombies.com. Check it out. Go there. You'll love it. You'll learn about my David Bowie obsession. You'll <laughs> learn that Chris has wolf eyes at home. Oh, yeah. You'll learn all kinds of things uh, that you will find interesting and fascinating, at least I hope. Uh, one of the things that I thought that was really cool that you have uh, been doing lately was uh, steampunk. There was yeah. a convention in Toronto recently that you went to. What was that all about? Because I uh, missed it. You missed it. Yeah, it was this uh, Saturday, and it was an event called Steam on Queen. Right. And uh, this was a street festival that was dedicated to Canadian steampunk, and really the first of its kind. Last year they had the first national uh, steampunk exhibition, but uh, this was the first time of getting together in sort of a public place, which is very different because typically when you have a geek convention, whether it be comic books or video right. games or horror, it's always sort of held in private. Uh, <laughs> for very good reason, right? I mean, it's, it's I, I, you know, I, I don't know about your childhood, but my childhood, it was uh, almost life-threatening to be a geek at the time. Right, right, right. It really beat you up for it. Not so much now, but, you know, I think uh, for a lot of people who have these kinds of interests, those memories still linger. And so when you have a Star Trek convention, people tend to try to hold it in private in a hotel. And that's what I really love about this particular festival. Uh, and it's sort of two things I wanted to talk about in the world of steampunk. I guess okay. first we should say what steampunk Well, the, he, here's the thing, because I have an idea, right? I have okay. an idea sitting on my desk. Let me just have a look here. I'm going to get up for a second. Sitting on my desk, I have uh, this thing. And right. this isn't exactly steampunk, I don't think, but I think it's probably pretty close. It's a magnifying glass that you can hook things onto uh, and study them up close. And the, the idea of it for me, the reason that I think it's sort of steampunky, is that it takes uh, sort of Jules. When I first saw it, I thought the first name that came to mind was Jules Verne for some reason. Because yeah. it just looked like something he would find, uh, you know, sitting on his desk. And he is one of these sort of godfathers, I think, of steampunk. Is that right? Am I right about uh, that? That's correct, yeah. He's um, definitely one of the, the big inspirations, him and H.G. Wells. Right. And, oh, okay. And so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a really cool – what you have there is a, is a really cool device in that it's very mechanical by yeah. nature. Uh, the, the look and feel of it certainly, I would say, is kind of steampunk, the use of the, the magnifying glass. Uh, definitely, I mean, steampunk, the way that I, I think about it, and everybody has their own personal definition, mm -hmm. but the one that might help people who have never heard of steampunk before is that it's science fiction that takes place in the Victorian age. Right. So you're going back in time. You're, you're using the location. You're using the, the kind of characters that would have existed at that time, but then embellishing it, getting the freedom of all the things that you would do in the genre of science fiction with that. Right. And, and good classic examples would be Jules Verne with 20,000 Leagues in the Sea or H.G. Wells with The Time Machine. Uh, and it's often a celebration of individuals who exhibit a great eccentricity, a genius, <laughs> a kind of artistry, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, the thing about that I think that's really special about it, the reason I felt that it, it sort of is something that people should be paying attention to, is that unlike all the other genres that I, I tend to get involved in and help celebrate at conventions and festivals, steampunk is not something that you can tie to any specific television series or movie. Right, 
right? Like you go to a science fiction uh, convention and everybody's dressed up as Darth Vader. They're right, or use a Batman or this or whatever, right? Yeah, right. video games like that. But when you go to a steampunk festival, and I'll show you a couple of photos here from uh, what happened this past weekend, you're looking at people who are dressed up as their right. own particular character. So, right. you know, from left to right, we've got three individuals who have handpicked all their clothing to kind of express themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, they may come up with uh, interesting sort of names and backstories and fictional monikers and that kind of stuff, but it's, it's sort of an artistic creation that we're looking at. You know, I wish top hats would come back into fashion just kind of generally. <laughs> top hats, and I, I like, there seems to be one, because I saw some of this on TV, there seems to yeah. be one sort of the, the common thread, the top hat with the goggles on the top hat. Yes. That seems uh, goggles. And then the other variations uh, might include, um, I mean, for a lot of the women, it's the chance to, to wear corsets. Right. Uh, to wear beautiful uh, Victorian dresses. Here is right. uh, a woman named Elizabeth who's part of the Toronto Steampunk Society. And I love, 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 love that monocle yeah. that she has on the right-hand side of her, her eye. Right. Uh, what I... So are those are those uh, like magnifying glasses that you can slide down? Is that what it is that's on the side? Uh, there's a, a, a telescopic uh, attachment that's on right. there. Uh, the thing that's really cool about it is that someone actually designed this so that she can still see through it. Because that's the fact. <laughs> As I've discovered with my eye patch I got from San Francisco, when I right. put it over my eye, I lose all depth perception. But she right. actually has right. uh, a layer of glass that's in there that allows her to be able to see through that. I thought that was very, very brilliant. Yeah. Uh, you also have a lot of people who are uh, mad inventors, uh, people who actually not just design clothing, but also create their own little uh, inventions. Mm -hmm. I'll show you. Uh, where's my fellow here? Ta-da. So this was a group of people sitting around this beautiful bell jar with a mechanical right. clockwork uh, device in there. And a lot of them are even functional to a certain degree. The guy on the right is holding a pipe that actually has an induction coil that would allow it to actually smoke if you wanted to. You uh, just to press a button on the side. I thought that was quite clever. Uh, yeah. But in terms of, of having a a public event, which is mm -hmm. what makes it also different from other conventions, because typically the only people that go to Star Trek conventions tend to be Star Trek fans right. or people who sell stuff to Star Trek fans. Uh, in this case, they held it at the historic Campbell House on the front lawn right. and made it free and public. So you didn't have to pay any money. There was no admission to go in. Uh, and it was astonishing because the turnout was amazing. There, there are about 1,500 people who identify themselves as steampunk fans in the Toronto and greater area. Wow. And so the organizers had thought, you know, maybe if they're lucky, they might get 700 or 800 people coming out to be able to take a look as, and, and sort of participate. At the end of the day, they had more than 4,000 people show up. Really? Really. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. I mean, I love, uh, you know, the sort of any kind of subculture. I like people that that are very comfortable in their own skin in terms of uh, a, a lifestyle or something that they adopt. I love the rockability guys that you used to see on Queen Street all the time, for instance. That was, you know, something they were sort of walking the walk and talking the talk. And I just think that the idea that 4,000 people, 4,000 people showed up <laughs> at this thing uh, yeah. and then have a, a shared and common interest in this is really kind of amazing. Oh, and it was fantastic in terms of uh, what they had put together for the, the day's events. A lot of conventions you go to, and it's just people sitting in chairs, right. watching somebody talk, either on a panel discussion or, you know, some sort yeah. of 
stupid screen slideshow. What they had arranged that day was a long list of performances. Mm -hmm. So you had one uh, fellow get up, and uh, he was doing a number of um, uh, sideshow acts, you know, the bed of nails, yeah. the, the human blockhead. Uh, they had belly dancers there performing in steampunk costumes, which was <laughs> really awesome. Yeah, wow. yeah it was wow. fantastic. Uh, There's a, a fellow who calls himself Black Santa, and he actually plays the bassoon theremin. And he got up and did a, a concert. And I have to tell you, that, I mean, some of the songs I recognized, there was a Star Spangled Banner there, yeah. a couple of other songs. And then he broke into Celine Dion. <laughs> you know the, the song from Titanic? Your right. heart will go on. Your he did that. On. Yeah, and I, I can't stand that song, but I have to say, on the theremin, it actually sounds a lot better. Well, it would, sense of it, it would have the appropriately eerie kind of odd feel that you would need to make that song tolerable. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that wow. kind of, yeah, yeah, no, it was cool. Uh, they had old-fashioned uh, lemonade there, uh, and then they had a, a rousing uh, group of singers who did really, really raunchy tavern songs. <laughs> like on the good ship Venus and stuff like that? Is that uh, well, a lot of them had semen as their uh, yes, as yes. in sailors and such, and uh, caviar, and, and a lot of that kind of thing. Uh, but it was quite fun, the, the enthusiasm that they put into it. And, of course, lots of little tiny merchants where you could go and you could get yourself a, a safari pit helmet or you can get, uh, you know, a, a little mechanical clock watch. Right. Um, lots, of, lots of really interesting things. And just great just to go and see the way that people dressed up. Uh, people put a lot of time and energy. There was this fellow here who not only, you know, spent the time and energy to put together a, a Victorian gunslinger costume, but uh, he actually has spent six years practicing how to twirl those guns. Wow. And you do them both left-hand and right-hand. <laughs> I uh, love it's, that. Yeah, it, it's fantastic. And that's one of the things that I really enjoyed in terms of meeting everybody. Everybody was very friendly, very cooperative. Everybody got along with each other. But just the, the people that you meet tend to be very crafty and artsy by nature. They spent a lot of years learning how to art, uh, how to draw, how to make things, how to build things. And so it's, it's very rewarding because people really are demonstrating stuff that they put a lot of time and energy into. I, I, it just, I can't express how much fun it really was to go and check out. Uh, it was only there for about six or seven hours, but again, they had 4,000 people. The yeah. Campbell House Museum actually was surprised because I talked to them and they said their expectation was they thought people would come to the festival on the front lawn, right. go check out all the wacky corsets and the little tiny hats yeah, yeah, and stuff yeah. like that, but would never actually enter the museum. And it was the opposite. They, they actually had nonstop flow of people coming in, people who had never been to the Campbell House before. There were some people who said that they hadn't been there in 40 years. Wow. So in terms of just even the, the museum itself, they were blown away that this really weird, goofy, you can imagine the first time they were pitched on this. Can we do a, a steampunk event at your museum? <laughs> uh, so they were just blown away by it. I, I imagine that uh, uh, Adam Smith, who's the organizer of Steampunk Canada, is probably going to have other events and I'll do my best to try to post them and let you know. If you hear of another festival like this, I highly recommend going. I met a lot of people who had never heard of Steampunk that day, and uh, they had an absolute blast. Right. Well, that sounds like fun. It sounds cool. I like Again, I like, you know, there's a sense of community that I often find at these kind of events. When I go to uh, the fan expos, and the fan expo, here in Toronto anyway, is uh, divided up into segments. So you've got an anime segment, and then you have, you know, comic book segment, then a horror segment. And people come in costume, and they, you know, there's inevitably, though, people, you know, 
anime people, you know, sway over into the other thing. But yeah. it's so cool because everyone is there just sort of to have fun. There's no judgment. And that's the thing. There's nothing that's really cynical about this, which I think is no. is the, the kind of cool thing, the thing that I'm always taken with because um, so often we are uh, uh, taken – uh, by the cynicism of uh, just sort of everyday life. And then you go to something like this, and people are uh, engaging in kind of odd behavior or strange behavior, what might be seen that way, but there's not a single wisp of judgment in the air anywhere. It's awesome. <laughs> no, and I, I spoke to a bunch of them. I actually uh, produced a little video. I'll post that on our right. website. You can cool. hear people talking. Uh, they're very, very friendly. And what I like about it is that when you go searching for steampunk stuff, there are so many online stores and shops that have come up with stuff that you've never seen before because, again, they don't have to draw from a movie or a book. Anybody right. can come up with anything. I'll show you the, the shirt that I'm wearing. A lot of people like the fact that my suspenders go right through the pockets. Yes, yes, there you go. <laughs> I like that too. Yeah. Um, well, one of the things I wanted to talk about, I'm, you know, I'm, it's only Tuesday. It's only Tuesday, and I'm having a bad week. And, I, you know, it's just one of those weeks where just, you know, nothing seems to be going right. You've got a bad case of gremlins. I do. I've got a bad yeah. case of gremlins. But they're just, like, everywhere. Everything yeah. I touch. You know, uh, I, I think they were at my place last week. I had plumbers right. that came and shut off all the electricity to my office, which was just um, a nightmare for me. And, you know, we had issues with our website. And I felt like I was Jackie Chan just trying to take on right. all the gremlins as best as I can. So... Uh, apparently, it's your turn this week. Yeah, now it's my turn. And, you know, I'm not the only one, apparently. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I'm having a bad week, but I would uh, suggest that Ken Gass, who was the artistic director of the Factory Theater here in Toronto, was probably having a worse week than I had. Uh, he's been let go. The board of directors oh. has let him go. Uh, now, to give you just a, a – I'm not going to – really uh, talk about this story specifically too much, but I'll give you some of the details. He founded the Factory Theatre, which is a theatre that promotes uh, Canadian playwrights. And uh, he founded it in the 70s, uh, ran it for a number of years, left, came back, gave it an infusion of cash when they were in uh, sort of rough states, uh, and became its artistic director again, and has now uh, you know, kept the theatre alive and kept it uh, thriving. And he has been let go, not because the theater is not doing well, not because he wasn't bringing in interesting plays. Uh, he's been let go because he disagreed with the board of directors over some real estate choices that oh. the, that the uh, board of directors would like to make. That's really just an example of the thing that I want to talk about here. Yesterday on Facebook, a friend of mine posted a story, or just a line, and it, it was, why do people think it's okay not to pay musicians for their work. I'm just right. thinking these days, sort of in a general way, it seems that every time I turn around, there's a story about Ken Gass in the newspaper, or uh, there's a story about how uh, the London Olympics aren't going to be paying musicians to play uh, in their opening gala. And, you know, it just it, it is a, a difficult go to make a, a living in the arts anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, it becomes even a bit more difficult when giant corporations like the Olympics, which are going to make a fortune off everything you know, that, uh, off everything that they touch and do, and everything sponsored and promoted, have decided not to pay uh, their uh, their musicians. Uh, you know, when boards of directors don't make artistic choices in terms of of running their theaters 
Boards of directors have every right to fire an artistic director if they're not doing their job properly, but the, the job of an artistic director is to be the artistic director, and, and uh, particularly one who founded the company should have a say in things and should be uh, summarily fired for uh, just simply disagreeing with people that don't have as deep-rooted connections with the theater. So I just, I, I really, because I'm having a bad week, uh, I would like to complain bitterly about the state of the arts, generally speaking, and, and wonder why. I mean, why is it that musicians, uh, you know, when bar owners, uh, places feel that it's okay not to pay musicians when you wouldn't expect a waiter to come in and work for free. You wouldn't expect anything, but it's, 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 it's not uncommon for writers to be asked to write for free. Uh, you get exposure. We'll, yeah. exp we'll give you exposure. Uh, exposure doesn't pay your rent, you know, and, and people no. in, in the arts community, you know, the talents that they, that they have, the talents that they've worked on for many, many years, learning to play guitar, fine-tuning their writing, doing whatever it is, is their skill, it's, and it is just as much of a skill as someone who builds houses for a living or someone who can fix your plumbing without turning off the water for the entire block. Uh, it is, it is a, a skill, and I'm just sort of feeling a little downcast at the idea that it's harder and harder uh, for people who have an artistic bent to make a living. Yeah, I completely agree. I don't understand, and it seems to be, I mean, there's always been a degree of that within the arts for since going back to the dawn of time, but lately it seems to be uh, a massive trend to try to get artists of any particular discipline yep. to come in and do stuff for free. And I don't understand it because you don't have executives being asked to work for free. Mm -hmm. You don't have, uh, I mean, there are other aspects of the Olympics, for example, where people are going to have to pay. They're going to pay somebody to, to come up with the theme music for the Olympics. They're going right. to pay people to come in and perform other aspects. Why would they suddenly feel that it's okay to, to, to sort yeah. of try to peer pressure people yeah. not to get paid here? It doesn't make I mean, any sense. I, I get that the, uh, the athletes aren't being paid. This was something that came up. And the, like the, the, the discussion on Facebook was kind of fascinating uh, because some people just had the opinion, well, if people will play, pay for free, then, you know, if they'll play for free, then, you know, screw yeah. them. Let them, let them play for free then. Sure. Uh, and, you know, other people said, well, you know, it's the Olympics. It's a celebration of, of amateur thing, an amateur sport, an amateur, you know. This, but a lot of musicians that are being asked to play for free are an amateurs. And so I, I just wonder where the, the mindset comes from that it's okay to ask someone, you know, to work for free when, you know, they've spent a great deal of time honing their craft and honing what they do um, or treating them poorly, as I really think the Factory Theater has treated uh, Ken Gass here. It just yeah. doesn't seem right to me uh, that someone who had such deep, a, a deep connection with this uh, uh, theater uh, can be uh, uh, treated in this way and very publicly. I mean, you know, there are... There are the right way to fire someone, and there's the wrong way to fire someone. <laughs> and uh, the Factory Lab Theater, I think, uh, chose the uh, chose the latter. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's uh, it's unfortunate. It's a, a lack of respect, uh, yeah. and I, I I think part of it is that we as a society tend to fail to recognize that corporate culture tends to be very greedy by its yeah. nature, in the sense that that's a survival aspect. If there is an, uh, a, a 
some door that they can open or something that they can exploit, they will, and they will go after it. And it's wrong when we kind of roll over and go, well, okay, you know, if that's just the way it is, that's the way it is. No, I think it is important to stand up and be angry about it, just as you would be angry about any other kind of thing that is morally wrong or something yeah. that falls on the side of being wrong. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not helping that I'm grumpy this week. It's not right. helping my state of mind when I, <laughs> when I think about this. And I'm like, you know, as I say, again, it's not a rant. It's not really that. It's, it's really just more a question. And, and you know, people who are listening out there and, and watching, uh, drop us a line. Go to HailYouZombies.com and let us know what you think. Let us know why you think it's okay or do you think it's okay. Maybe not why, but do you think it's okay? Yeah. Um, because I don't. I get paying your dues. I, get, I wrote for free when I was starting to, to make my name as a writer or wanting to make my name as a writer. Absolutely, I work for free. Uh, but I limit that now severely. I will, I will uh, do the odd thing for free. I will, uh, a, a little while ago, I did something for the Toronto Library. You know, I created something, a, a piece for them uh, to uh, get people to read, to encourage kids to read. I'm fine doing all that kind of stuff. That stuff's a little different. But don't come to me with a magazine or a newspaper or something that you're planning on making money from and ask me to write for free because it's not going to happen. Yeah, I have no problems if you have a charity organization where the organizers are like, look, we're not getting paid either. Then that's fine. Or if you're looking to try to create an opportunity for a student or an intern to come in to work for a place, that's fine. But what's happened is that that original sentiment has been scaled up and has been twisted so that you have people who have 10 or 12 or 15 years in the industry also suddenly being asked to, to, to donate their time and by corporations that make massive amounts yeah. of money where there is yeah. no question that there's money there that could be used to pay. It's just a case of, well, we think we can squeeze you and that will maximize our profits and make our shareholders happy. And hey, at the end of the day, that's how we make money. You know, I yeah. mean, if, if you fought harder, then maybe you might have that money. You get that yeah. kind of uh, nasty yeah. attitude going on. I mean, I just think it's about knowing your own self-worth as an artist and knowing this doesn't apply to Ken Gass because he certainly does, but you know, in the broader sense of, of, of what I've been thinking about, it's about knowing your own sense of self-worth and, and, you know, knowing that it might be a little rougher road for you if you start saying no to working for free. But um, I think that at a certain point you have to do it and, uh, and, and, and assert yourself. Otherwise you're going to be uh, that, you know, you're going to be a, a waiter who writes on the side and not a writer who uh, makes money doing it. You can't always be motivated by fear, and yeah. at a certain point in your career, you realize that no can be one of the most powerful words that's out there, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you have to stand up. I mean, sometimes it's a case of knowing which battles to lose in order to win the war, and so right. you may have to stand up and say, no, I'm not going to do the job for free, even though it may look like that's a lost opportunity, but later yeah. on, people will realize they got to pay you, otherwise forget it. Yeah. Show me the money, but you, then that's really all, that's, you know, listen, that's what I'm you just want to get that off your chest. Today. That's fine. Well, I'm bad to today, and that's where that comes from. Um, uh, you wanted to talk about turtles. I want to talk about a particular turtle. I know. Uh, the story's a little sad. The story's well, quite sad. It's, it's two things. It's both sad, but the reason that I chose it, it's also one of the most bizarre stories of all time. Right. Right. Uh, I'm talking about uh, a particular tortoise named Lonesome George. Lonesome George. He even starts off sad. His name is Lonesome George. Lonesome George was absolutely the very, 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 very last of his species. Right. He was a, a Galapagos tortoise, right? He was a Pinta Island Galapagos tortoise. Uh, I'm going to see if I can get a photo of him. I pulled one up. And where did he go? 
it disappeared on me. Now, was he called Lonesome? I guess he was called Lonesome George because he was the last of his kind, right? Is that... Uh, uh... Yeah, that's kind of the, the idea. What happened was um, the, the Pinta Island tortoises were thought to have been extinct uh, right. several years ago. And one day somebody was out on an expedition and they happened to cross poor Lonesome George right. who had missed uh, the last wave of deaths and had been literally wandering around by himself. Right, um, right, that right. was in 1972, and um, conservatives and scientists have been spending the last 39 years trying to find him a suitable mate so that he could pr uh, propagate the species. And it's been sad. I mean, when you're dealing with tortoises, which are creatures that can live up to 200 years old, extinction is a very long, drawn-out process, very sad right. by its nature. And they did right. find him one female tortoise from a different tortoise species, and uh, they did actually mate, and they, they had eggs, but the eggs proved to be infertile. Right. Well, yeah, I'm not surprised by it. I mean, it's a different yeah. species. It, it totally. I mean, you know, they are tortoises, and they're yeah. sort of subgenius. They did find another uh, species that was a closer genetic match, but uh, George never took a shine to the lady. Nothing ever happened. George was a choosy bugger. Yeah. He and, was particular about his women tortoises. Well, the thing is, he lived to be, they think he was about 100 years when he passed away. Uh, the lifespan is usually about 200, so it did come as a bit of a shock. People thought they did have a couple more decades that they could have done something with. Right, right. Uh, and, yeah, he came to his end. And he will be um, embalmed and now right. put on display as a reminder. He, he was called Lonesome George as a way of drawing attention right. to conservation, to the, the plight of extinction. But uh, <laughs> his story gets a little bit sadder in terms of that for his species, his relationship with human beings is probably one of the worst in history. Uh, George belongs to a species that has the rather unfortunate distinction of being considered one of the most delicious animals that has ever existed. Uh, well, I was going to say, right, and Victorians ate turtle soup, and there was, like, there was, well, people still do, but yeah. uh, the, the tortoise was considered to be a real delicacy for, you know, many, many years. Well, in, in this, this case, Victorians never got to taste the Galapagos Island tortoise, because Every attempt to try to bring them from the island to England failed uh, because the sailors just could not stop eating them. <laughs> really? And, and, really. And, and I'm not kidding. Like, it sounds like one of those things where somebody wrote in a book, oh, this is the most delicious animal of all time, and sort of got blown out. No. I imagine they, the same thing would happen if, like, Rolos were only available on one side of the country. Yeah. You can never bring them up because they're so delicious, you well, just want to eat them. All. You can imagine that there was an island where M&Ms were made, and that was it, and every attempt to try to bring them right. back just failed, right. uh, and failed over the course of 300 years. <laughs> 300 years of attempts of trying to get people to go to the island to bring Galapagos giant tortoises, uh, just for a number of reasons, for study and for all sorts of things. But this began in, in the year 1533. The first sailors came across these tortoises. Uh, and as what was often the habit, habit is that if you came across a new world, you'd collect some of the animals to right. bring back. Right. Partly that's your marketing. Look at me. I'm a wonderful explorer, but look what yeah. I've got back. But also because there were naturalists and scientists who would pay top dollars to have uh, specimens of new animals and species. The first sailors that got those tortoises on board, you get halfway through the sea, and uh, your provisions are looking pretty dry. Yeah, you're tired of eating fish. You're tired yeah. of eating... Uh, and yeah. someone says, yeah. you know, these tortoises, they're kind of large. They're, they're wrinkly. They look uh. really ugly. But maybe we could try just eating one. Right. And uh, right. they cooked it, and they prepared it, and it was uh, irresistibly, undescribably, the most delicious thing that anybody had ever eaten. 
our lives. And the next thing you know, uh, they went right back to the galley, grabbed the next turtle. Halfway there, they ran out of tortoises. And so I had to turn the ship around to go back to the island to catch another collection of tortoises. Even doing that, by the time they got to London, England, all the that was left in the galley were just empty shells. And to really explain just how absolutely delicious these tortoises were, uh, I mean, when I say empty shells, even the bones weren't left. Because it turns out if you eat boiled the bones or the liver, all the stuff that normally would be inedible, that too turned out to be absolutely delicious. Is there um, any, did, did they, anyone try and describe what it tasted like? Was there any, well, you know, <laughs> writing about, like, it tasted like ambrosia mixed with, you know, it, well, what ended up happening was, I mean, there was lots of money being handed to ship's captains saying, okay, right. this time you're coming back with a live, even if you come back with a dead tortoise, just bring us one that's intact. And that could not happen. I mean, successive waves of, of ships that would go, they just couldn't help themselves. It's, you know, ship captains would show up looking rather glum with these really elaborate excuses. Wow, you know, this squid came over and grabbed yeah. all the tortoises. <laughs> the kraken. The kraken got the tortoises. So you had scientists that said, all right, we can't bring the tortoises to us. We'll go to the tortoises, and we'll write books that will describe what the tortoises look like and their habitat and all that kind of stuff. The ships came back. Once again, all they had were empty shells of the tortoises, and, <laughs> and the scientists just brought back books that described how good the tortoises tasted. <laughs> there were books that compared tortoises in terms of their taste to mutton, to lamb, to right. chicken, to steak, and in each case, just overflowing descriptions of how much better they tasted compared to all those other meats and, and animals that were out there. Wow. Um, it didn't help that uh, the tortoises ended up being just incredibly practical because not only uh, were they easy to catch, big, large, slow-moving, but they had slow metabolism, so when you put them on top of your ship, you didn't actually have to feed them too often. They could go for right. months without actually having to eat. And part of the anatomy of a tortoise is that it actually conserves uh, water really, really efficiently. And so when you would open it up to, to get the meat inside, you'd also have this beautiful bladder that had about a gallon of fresh water. Really? Really. Very valuable. And, you know, well, see, and... I would suggest that just from a, a presentation point of view, they come in a bowl. They yeah. have a bowl in their shell. You just flip them over and you can sort of just eat them right out of their own ready-made oh, like, bowl. Yeah. No, it's just it's one of those truly bizarre things where, you know, again and again and again, people might say, look, look, they're really, really delicious. And yeah. you have some explorers say, oh, give me a break. I, I am a man, I've got yeah. self-discipline, I will go and get these tortoises, and I don't care. We'll, we'll try one, but there's no way I'm going to be able to eat them all. Right. Let me put it this way. It got to the point where Charles Darwin himself got on board a ship and went out to go and get some tortoises, which played a major role in his uh, creating the theory of evolution, because right. the finches, that's where he knows, came back empty-handed. Really? He Charles, ate the tortoise? Yes, he did, yes. It is... <laughs> <laughs> it is one of the wow. most remarkable stories. I mean, Charles Darwin was somebody who tasted a lot of different animals. Uh, there was an old brown owl that he ate that said was just so incredibly awful and gamey that it was beyond description in terms of trying to describe how it tasted. But most animals, of course, people often say they taste like chicken, not the giant tortoise. It actually was just the most delicious thing of all time. It took 300 years. It wasn't until the 1900s before one successfully was brought back to London, England, in order to be given a scientific name and, and entered into the scientific journals. Wow. They ate so many of them that the um, species became very threatened. Now, th thankfully, we didn't eat them all. 
what ended up happening was that you had so many ships coming by to stock their, their holds with these tortoises that a lot of them would leave behind invasive species, and it was the goats that ended up doing in a lot of them. There were 14 different species of Galapagos tor uh, tortoises. Uh, now, with the death of Lonesome George, there's only 10 left. Wow. Well, that's, uh, that is a... A, a bizarre story. I just yeah. love that there, there's something. There's a cooking network show in there somewhere. A food <laughs> network show. Like you know, what food could you possibly make that would you know be so tempting that you know scientists and sailors and, and no one, no one could control themselves for, for 300 years. I mean, this went on where you That's never. Ha I mean, they brought all sorts of animals back. I mean, it's funny because I'm trying to do research and I wonder if these were inspired by oh, uh, them or not. Because those are delicious. They are very delicious. <laughs> I think what ended up happening, the reason why we still have some of them left, uh, they're now protected species, obviously. So right, in fact, right, some right. of the species, they got down to where there's only 15 animals left. In Is that right? Oh, it, it's just crazy. But I, I think, you know, if, if I do enough research, I could probably find out it was the invention of the tiramisu or chocolate bars that suddenly allowed us to, to leave the poor tortoises alone. But wow! Yeah. Well, that's that's crazy. Uh, that is, uh, you know, I mean, it's a sad story, but I love the backstory. That yeah. is, that's really something. Well, well I, you know, it came at a time in which we didn't really understand extinction. We still, yeah. at that time, believed that you could eat as much as you want, and nature would yeah. simply just go. Here's well, what people, is. people still don't kind of understand it. I mean, let's be real. I mean, just in terms, I mean. You know, just in terms of the way the world works, people still think that there's going to be oil for the rest of our lives. People still think there's going to be, you know, whatever. Um, you know, it's Canada Day, almost, this week, coming up, Canada Day. And I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, some movies. That's what I do. I watch movies. And uh, I want to talk about some movies, three in particular, that you can uh, rent and check out and uh, have a look at if you want to spend uh, Canada Day. Who knows what? I haven't looked ahead. I'm assuming, given the blistering inferno-like weather <laughs> that we've been uh, suffering through here in Toronto, that uh, that will continue, and there'll be more of the same come Canada Day. But if there isn't, and you want to stay in, and you want to watch a movie, or if you're at a cottage, and you've got mm -hmm. one of those uh, sort of outdoor screens like a friend of mine has, you can uh, watch these three movies. The first I wanted to talk about is Going Down the Road. Now, Going Down the Road is um, a Canadian movie that came out to great acclaim when it was originally released. Uh, it was shot over uh, a period of time. Uh, they had to start and stop a little bit by a, a director named Don Shabib. And it involved the story of two men who came from uh, the Maritimes to Toronto looking for jobs. I mean, a common story back in those days. Uh, the, the movie was shot uh, on the ends of film. So other productions oh, wow. that would have shot and, you know, maybe had half a reel or a couple of reels, like whatever, they would sell these to, to people who didn't have a great deal of money. And you can kind of cobble together enough of this film to shoot your own film. So Shabib does this. He, he creates the story. It was partially scripted, partially improvised. And it really became, I think, the definitive kind of portrait of, of uh, life in the, 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 the idea of, that life in the Maritimes, where I'm from originally, at that point, jobs were drying up. It wasn't a land of opportunity. All the kind of things that had sustained 
those particular provinces like farming and fishing and all the agricultural jobs, they were all either disappearing or uh, a new generation just simply didn't want to do them. And so they were coming, you know, leaving, going to Calgary, looking to work in the oil uh, fields out there, or they were coming to Toronto as the famous parody on Second City or uh, uh, SCTV said, looking for lawyering and doctoring jobs. Uh, but <laughs> Uh, this movie is just such a great portrait of that. Now, if you're if you're from Toronto or uh, well, yeah, if you're from Toronto, just a lot of it was shot just a few blocks from where I'm sitting right here on Young Street. And I love, and I just had a look at this the other day, uh, again for the one millionth time because it's fresh out on DVD and it's coupled with uh, another movie called Going Down the Road Again, which is the sequel 40 years later. Oh, really? Uh, with, with many of the same actors. <laughs> But uh, it's such a great portrait of the city. Uh, the Sam the Record Man discs are there. Steel's oh, Tavern, cool. you can see where Gordon Lightfoot got his start. And it really reminds you, uh, you know, if you've lived here for a long time, uh, that the city, you know, has changed a great deal. But it changes very slowly, you know. That, that kind of change takes a while to move on. And so it reminds you that, uh, you know, that strip down uh, sort of from Girard to Queen uh, which is now where the Eaton Center is. And it's like a lot of big cities, you know, like a lot of big cities have malls and it's all very clean and there's a there's a courtyard there called Dundas Square. Well, that used to be called the Strip and it was raunchy down there. It's where the, uh, the rounders went, the guys who, you know, sort of spent their days going round to different bars here and there. Right, okay. And, you know, prostitutes and that's where the blues music was played and all the kind of things that the uh, the good Protestants that were in the city at the time weren't that fond of. But it's a it's a really great portrait of that. So if you want to have a look at this movie, uh, particularly I think if you're from the East Coast or if you're from Toronto, fantastic choice. If you're from a little further west, you might want to check out FUBAR. FUBAR! FUBAR is a fantastic movie uh, about uh, two hosers who give her as they like to say, or given her, uh, named Terry and Diener. This direct movie was directed by Mike Douse. Uh, it is a, a low-budget film that is a character study of these two guys, much like guys that I grew up with, uh, guys who, you know, like to listen to heavy metal music, wear the jean jackets with the big patches on the back, uh, long hair, the whole thing. Uh, Good-hearted guys who just like to, you know, whoop it up on the weekends and drink their, you know, rock and roll all night party every day. That's, sure, that's yeah. who Terry and Diener are. But the fascinating thing about this movie is that it could very easily just have been that. It could have been that, and it would have been an affectionate portrait. It would have been an affectionate portrait of, of, uh, of a way of life that is maybe not indigenous to Canada, but certainly something that I very much identify with Canadians and, and people that I grew up with. But instead, about halfway through, something happens. And I'm not going to give this away. The movie's a number of years old now, mm -hmm. so you can easily look it up online. But something happens uh, uh, that really deepens the story. It changes it into something else. It changes it into uh, something that, that is more than just a character study. It is changes it into a very real story, heartfelt story, um, and, it, and it makes it impossible to laugh at the characters. You're now laughing with them when you are laughing. And it's a really beautifully uh, uh, structured film in that sense. It doesn't feel like it's going to start off that way. It doesn't feel no. like that's the movie it's going to turn into. And that's what I really am sort of particularly taken with this. It's very skillfully made, but it's still a whole lot of fun. And Terry and Diener, 
and everyone knows Bob and Doug, Terry and Diener are the second generation, or the next generation Bob and Doug. So that movie is well worth having a look at as well. Uh, another thing that Canadians do really well in film, uh, and I think part of it is a function of uh, not having a great deal of money. We don't spend because our population is smaller than the U.S., uh, you know, and you can uh, English language films, generally speaking, don't play in Quebec as much as, as uh, uh, you know, Quebec films play in the rest of the country. And so uh, the audiences are smaller, so budgets tend to be a little smaller. Uh, so when we make horror films, we frequently have to, uh, you know, sort of play with the mythology a little bit. We have to change the mythology. And um, I think quite often with very startling results. And one of the films that is a great example of this is uh, Ginger Snaps. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Werewolf. It's a, yeah, it's a werewolf movie. Uh, the difference, though, the thing that, that the, the tweak to the mythology here that I really love uh, is that they're teenage girls whose bodies are changing rapidly anyway, right. who, uh, who are, are having hormonal changes happening in their bodies that they don't understand, one of whom also happens to sort of, you know, the, those changes take her one step further, and she becomes a werewolf. And it's a really interesting, uh, funny, scary, like it really, there's a lot of good chills and thrills there. Written by a woman named Karen Walton. Karen Walton uh, is easily accessible via Facebook and Twitter if you want to uh, uh, oh, cool. check her out. Yeah, it's very <laughs> cool. But she understands how uh, these kids would talk to one another as well as weaving together this very cool story. So uh, going down the road, a nostalgic look back at, you know, uh, uh, what Canada and what, you know, certainly that exodus that I remember very well when everyone was leaving the Maritimes and, and going west. Uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting, fascinating portrait of that. It'll break your heart. There's a lot of this. It's very heartbreaking, uh, but it's a really fascinating, interesting movie. Um, and it started off, you know, it started off as one of those rare Canadian films that actually broke out. People went to see it. And then I think after a while... There seemed to be uh, almost like people were embarrassed by this movie. They're like, oh, it just showed we, we just looked like a bunch of hicks. And, we let, and, and so this film got buried for a long time. And I think just recently, in the last number of years, again, it's been rediscovered as kind of the classic that it is. In fact, Jeff Pavir, who used to be my co-host on Real to Real years sure, yeah. ago, has just written a really good book about the movie that's uh, available. If you just go online and poke around, you'll find it. Cool. Uh, and then, of course, Fubar and Ginger Snaps, really great movies uh, that you know will entertain and give you a reason to wave that Canadian flag. Yeah, and it seems like there's plenty of, of interest in terms of uh, vampires and zombies and lots of uh, shows and movies that handle those two uh, horror icons really, really well. But yeah. werewolves, for some reason, has always been difficult for filmmakers to really tackle well. Well, you know, I, I, listen, I, I agree. I, I absolutely agree. And I think that werewolves are actually, you know, in, in terms of uh, sort of the backstory and, and, and just the whole kind of idea of being a werewolf it's like something you can't control you can't help yourself you 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 know vampires well, I guess you don't really have a choice but you're a vampire all the time you're no you're no longer human if you're a mummy of all the classic vampires and, or monsters werewolves are different because you're human a great deal of the time and then every now and again this thing this curse happens and uh, um, so they are there's a, there's a great deal more pathos there just 
inherent in the story than with any of the other creatures. And maybe that's why people can't quite nail it often. The original movies uh, do nail it. But, yes. you know, that god-awful Benicio Del Toro oh. movie a few years ago really just missed the boat on that completely. Oliver Reed made a good uh, uh, werewolf movie for Hammer Films early right. on. And I think it's called Mark of the Werewolf. And uh, it's, uh, it's pretty good if you have a chance to uh, have a look. Yeah, Hammer films are great. I, oh, I've yeah. seen about four or five of them so far and uh, just was really, you know, blown away in terms of what I thought I was going to watch. You know, I right. thought it was going to be very, very schlocky. And no, actually, sitting down, although they are they're, um, sort of dated because of the time period that they were made, they're actually, I think, far better written, well written in terms of, of the scripting and the story and the characters than most people give the Hammer films, the early Hammer films anyways, credit for Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and they're beautifully made, and they're lurid. I love the colors and the, just sort of the, the vibrancy uh, of, the, of the, the, the color films. There were some black and white ones, too, but the color films really are eye-popping. And, uh, you know, the, the Hammer women were unbelievable. You know, like, it was just, they, they were as, you know, given the time that they came out in the, in yeah, the, in the yeah. 60s where sort of the, was the, you know, the heyday of them. Uh, they were as close to the line as you could possibly get, uh, and uh, man, they were fun. And they still, they remain fun. Yeah, well, the thing I find with um, sitting down and watching a lot of B-movies, they can be a lot of fun, but they're hard to, you have to kind of sit and wait for the cheesy moments to come right. to kind of make it worthwhile, whereas with the Hammer films, I find that you're not sitting around waiting. They actually give all the moments in between a lot of value, just well, you know, the way that the, the actors sort of arrive in their locations and the conversations that they have. Then, you know, the ravishing women arrive, and they start commanding people, and, you know, things go all well, crazy. Well, and, and you've got Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing and actors like that that are the that are headliners in these things, and they're both great actors. I mean, Christopher Lee's still working today. I mean, he's in Hugo at Christmas time for uh, uh, Martin Scorsese. This guy just refuses to stop. Like Dracula, he, maybe he is immortal. He played Dracula almost more than anybody else, so uh, maybe he actually is immortal. Very cool. Thank well, uh, unfortunately, we don't have uh, uh, an episode of Movie Pistols at Dawn to present. We've had issues with our website. Uh, it was a number of problems that were happening right. thanks to Tumblr. I want to say that um, Stylehatch, the company that actually designs our theme that goes on our yeah. website, has been very supportive in trying to help me work out what the bugs were, whether it was okay. the theme, whether it was Tumblr. That has finally been resolved about 20 minutes before you and I <laughs> sat down to do this. Uh, so we will be able to next time do an episode of Movie Pistols at Dawn. But for now, uh, what I will do is I will leave us with a little image of Lonesome George. Oh, Lonesome here. George. And I promise I'll be in a better mood next week. Yes, you'll be in a better mood. Well, at least you're not uh, on your way to being embalmed at a museum somewhere. But there he is. There he is. Oh, Lonesome George. With the distinction of being the most delicious creature of all time. <laughs> you know what? It's like the first person to ever eat an oyster. Like to look at that thing and go, oh boy, I bet you that is delicious. You've got to be, you be a brave guy, a brave uh, gourmand to uh -huh. look at that thing and think it's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> all right, then. Well, uh, we'll see you all next week, and thank you once again for spending your time with us. And by all means, uh, leave us comments. Hey, you know, one thing you could do is you could actually share what you think is the most delicious thing of all time, oh, yeah. the most delicious thing that you've ever eaten. I'd love to see some suggestions and comments come through on that. All right. See you later, people. <laughs>